Let's pray. Father, we do give you praise and thanks, glory and honor. Our hearts cry is that you would lead us back to you. God, we thank you, Lord. We had 10,000 tongues we could not say thanks enough to you. God, the grace and the love that you have shown to us is pleasure. We thank you for the Son that saved us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that empowers us and that leads us. And we thank you, God, that we're able to gather here once again to worship you corporately in spirit and in truth. Now, God, we pray that you would be with us, that we would stand in awe of you through the preaching of the word. So we pray, Lord, that you would speak to your servants have gathered to hear. Lord, open our eyes to behold the marvelous truths from your word. Give us ears of faith that we will hear God in our heart that have a deeper love for Jesus as a result. So, God, we pray that you would now have your way in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 So family, have you heard of the prayer, God is good, God is great, let us thank him for our food? It's something that we've all probably said growing up as children, when it was time to kind of bless the food. And as a once aspiring MC, I was like, yo, that just doesn't rhyme. It's bad parts. But it is good theology. Because if God is good, and if God is good, then we have a problem. Because there's only one proper response to a God like this, and that's fear, reverence, and love. And the world and the church, in some degree, has lost this trembling before God. Some due to ignorance, others through rebellion, but all because of sin. In the news, we see the church, in the news, we see the world, and at times, you can't even tell the difference. There's a need to reestablish an understanding of the fear of the Lord. So what exactly is this? How do we get it? That's part of the aim of this series over the next couple of months. Um, throughout the summers as pastors and preachers, we want to introduce you to the doctrine of the fear of the Lord. We want you to see it from the book and in the scripture so that it bears good fruit in your life. The type of fruit that loves God, that honors God that hates evil, and that brings joy. Man, like, who would have ever thought that you could talk about the fear of the Lord and joy at the same time? Or the fear of the Lord and love of God being one and the same? And naturally, our minds, they just don't go there. So this is why we need to start with definitions, so that we can come to a level playing field and an understanding of what God is saying through the fear of the Lord. So what is this fear? Exodus chapter 20, verse 18 to 20, it gives us a biblical foundation of this kind of spectrum of fear. On one side, you have fear. The other side, you have fear. And in the middle, you have this spectrum. You got the good fear, you got the bad fear, the holy fear, and the sinful fear. Listen how Moses lays it out when he first received the Ten Commandments uh, from God in verse 18 of chapter 20. He says, now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we'll listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. And listen to Moses' response. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, and you may not sin. Catch that? 
Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. There's an ungodly sin that drives you from God, but there's also a godly holy fear that drives you to God. Both ends of the spectrum involve some type of trembling, either a trembling in terror or a trembling in amazement. So to both members and guests this morning, where are you currently on the spectrum regarding the fear of God? The left side of the spectrum is terror, it's afraidness of God, the thought that all my sin will be laid bare in the courtroom of heaven, for a holy God is indeed truly frightening. For those who've been to court, you understand. You know that feeling you get right before the final verdict of the judgment? Time almost seems to stand still. You can feel your heart literally pounding in your chest as you reflect on every detail of the case. And at that moment, you may even pray to a God you don't even believe in. And how ironic is that? But in desperation, you find yourself grasping for something in order to avoid the inevitable. Hebrews 9, 27 says it's appointed man to die once and after that to judgment. It should cause you to tremble. To know that you will have to appear before God the judge of both the living and the dead. Michael Reeves in his book, Rejoice and Tremble, calls us in dread of moments. But for the Christian, whose eyes have been opened to God's great love and to God's great mercy, the sinful fear fades while this godly fear grows. The Christian, when the same tempter who tempts us now stands in the courtroom to accuse us, the judge says, not guilty. Not guilty on the basis of our union with Christ and his perfection. Not guilty on the basis because of the seal of the Holy Spirit. Not guilty on the basis of his promise that he that began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Not guilty, Christian. Not guilty, Michael. Not guilty, Abby. Not guilty, Nika. Not guilty, Durst. Not guilty. Not guilty. This is good news that moves us from hiding from God to drawing near to God. So in this definition of fear and thinking about the spectrum, we move from terror, dread, and trembling and being afraid, which is on the left side, to the astonishment, the awe, the amazement, the reverence, the devotion, and the worship on the right side. So in our definition of fear, uh, this is what we're talking about. Knowing the difference between these two really helps us to clarify the scripture in 1 John chapter 4, verse 18 where it says there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. So this, this verse explains that we're no longer driven by terror that has to do with punishment, but rather worship driven by love, mercy, and honor of God. Text today that we'll be looking at is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 1 to 6. And this is what Moses is talking about. That type of fear that drives the Israelites to, 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 to view God as worshipful, right? So the main point of this sermon, the fear of the Lord is a positive thing. In fact, to fear God is to love God and obey God. So 
To fear God is to love God and obey God. Here's a reading of God's word. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 1 to 6. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded you to teach you, that you may do them in the land in which you're going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all the statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in the land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So three movements from the text that will help us think of this right relationship between fearing God, loving God, and obeying God. Number one, you hear his word and tremble. So that in verse one to three. Know his character and tremble. Verse four and five. And then an application question. Why does my heart not tremble? Verse six. So here we're introduced to Moses and Israel. And as I stated earlier, Israel has a history of wrongly placed fear and wrongly placed love. God gave them the incentive of the promised land flowing with both milk and honey, both bountiful and fertile. The only issue was people still lived with it, right? But what was an issue to them was not an issue to God. He told them to take possession of the land, and his word to them was, do not fear or be dismayed. So what do they do? Do they take God at his word, or they just outright reject him? Well, they do what many of us tend to do. He said, yes to your will, Lord, let that be done, but let it be done in my time. Let it be done in my way. So we do what we do, and then we get what we get. So they send in 12 spies to bring back a report on the land. Two came back, and it's good. The other 10, they went, came back, the report was good of the land, but they were unwilling to go because they were afraid. They feared the Amorites. They feared the sons of Anakin. They said, we were like grasshoppers in their eyes. You see a pattern here? The pattern of sinful fear, type that walks by sight and not by faith, trusting in the Lord and his word. And as a result of disobeying God, there were consequences to their actions. They wandered for 40 years in the wilderness until that generation of fighting men died. And sadly, this has been a pattern for ancient Israel. As they constantly struggle to remain faithful to God, they start off good in one sense, and then they fail. They start off again, and then they fail. The Lord is full of grace, and he gives them opportunity after opportunity that they don't deserve. This is the setting that they find themselves in now, literally on the verge of entering into the promise. Deuteronomy 6, 1 and 3 says, now this is the commandment, the statutes, the rules, that the Lord your God commanded thee to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you're going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping his commands and statutes, which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be long. Hear therefore, Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord God of your fathers promised you in the land flowing with milk and honey. They will hear his word and tremble. 
Moses speaks to the people who gathered and says, look, don't be like past generations. They heard and they rebelled. But you need to hear, obey, and this will produce what's called the fear of God. Early in the conversation in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 10 to 13, he reminds them of this fearsome God who spoke from Mount Paul to remind them that God is God. He says in verse 10 of chapter 4, how on that day you stood before the Lord your God at home. The Lord said to you, gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on earth and that they may teach their children so. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice, and he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them in two tablets of stone. I mean, can you imagine the scene? It had to be terrifying. He's like, make sure you recognize the one who is speaking. And the reminder was designed to produce this fear of God in the hearts of the people. They would not just stand in awe and reverence of a burning mountain that shot up to heaven or just be amazed at the darkness with a sound of a voice they heard but saw no form. But they were supposed to be transformed into obedience. And the amazing part of this is that they actually saw this in did. The Lord promised that by fearing and obeying, they would prosper as a people. And reality was not necessarily the things that were the blessing, but the actual blessing was the fear of the Lord itself. Tech Sergeant Brilliant, that would know him, but he was one of my drill instructors in the military. And it's a good thing that you fear your drill instructor. And he spoke, everybody listened. Still to this day, when I see a drill instructor, I kind of straighten up, you know? I remember his walk, I remember the talk, the focus in his eyes, the driven struck the hat. I mean, everything about them pointed to instilling, instilling this fear in others, right? Let me tell you what that did for our squadron. He thought nobody was as bad as I could show. Not bad meaning bad, but bad meaning good. Something I thought. It. it made you confident that as much as they put you through at the end of the day, we were all on the same team. And instilling fear was the most loving thing they could do because they recognized in a combat situation, your life depended on following instructions. Not listening could literally cost you your life. And if for a mere man, how much more should we tremble at the words of the living God? Throughout our redemptive history, God says to his people, fear the Lord, that you may obey the Lord, that you may truly love the Lord. Love the Lord, that you may obey the Lord, that you may truly fear the Lord. These are like the cheat codes of the Christian life that you play but with a broken control. This is how you're to live in light of eternity and preparation for eternity. You're in trouble. You don't need new batteries. You need a whole new device. You need a savior. But Isaiah doubled down on this, right? In Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2. He says, this is the one whom I look to, God's people. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. 
Isaiah's warning to Israel was to obey God in humility and tremble at his word. This is the type of fear that causes you to draw near to God, but more importantly, for God to draw near to you. God spoke to Adam and told him not to eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Is knowledge a bad thing? No. But what's bad was Adam's disobedience to God's word. Were there consequences? Absolutely. A broken personal relationship and a universal fall of man. Family of God's disobedience to his word has both immediate consequences and a far-reaching impact beyond what we could ever imagine. Adam was naked and ashamed and hidden from his God. In the past, God has spoken through the prophets, but in these times, God has spoken through the Son. And 2,000 years ago, the Word became flesh and literally lived among us. The Father himself, both at Jesus' baptism and at the Mount of Transfiguration, served as a witness from heaven that this is his Son, whom he is well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples, when they heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified that Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise, have no fear. Both Moses and Elijah were standing there. The Father said these words. Listen to him. What a picture of the fulfillment of all that the law and all that the prophets stood for in Israel's history. As soon as they appear on the scene, they fade away and they leave only Jesus. This is good news because now we as God's people can be brought near in the right kind of fear of the Lord, one that draws us near to Christ. And the worship we experience now is just a foretaste, family. A dry run of our worship in heaven. As the praise team, as they sang, I can only imagine, with the writer imagine, surrounded by God's glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for Jesus or in awe or will be still? Will I stand in your presence? To my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? I can only imagine. You imagine that. See, we get a glimpse of this in Revelation 5, verse 11 to 14 in heaven, where John says, Then I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth, wisdom and might, honor and glory and blessing. This is good news because John was weeping loudly in the previous verses because no one in heaven, on earth, or under the earth was able to break the seal. And then he continues, and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down in worship. The elders fell down in worship. There's no better way to understand worship than to observe it in heaven. This is where the right and godly fear, obedience, and love expresses itself in worship. So, church, do you hear God's word? Do you read God's word? Or better yet, do you know God's word with the end goal? to tremble in worship. 
You see following his word as a matter of life and death? Have you rejoiced in the fact that Christ has obeyed the law perfectly on your behalf? See, the right understanding of fearing God, loving God, and obeying God is number one, hearing his word and trembling. And number two, knowing his character and trembling. Here we see this in him being the covenant-keeping one true God. Look what we hear in the text in verse 4 and 5. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Does it seem odd to you that God would command his people to love him? Really, this is a summary of all of the 600 plus laws and commandments that God gave to Israel. But love is the greatest commandment. Jesus said that. You get this one and you get them all. This section of scripture is called the Shema. It was considered the heart of the law. It is Israel's call to action to not just listen and love, but also to obey. It was synonymous. You could not separate the two. And two of the most misunderstood words, one is fear, the other is love. We talked about the spectrum of fear, but love is equally misunderstood. Is it a feeling? Is it an action? Is it a duty? Is it a person? Yes, 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 and yes. So the connection between fear, love, and obedience has to be seen through a biblical lens. But what happens is the culture will drive the definitions and money the world. So the command to love and fear is not talking about a sinful relationship of abuse disguised as love. There's a covenantal commitment from God to his people. So in other words, God's people are called to love him because he first loved them. God is always the initiator. It's in his nature, his character, and it's based off of his covenant. So Deuteronomy 4, right after the terrifying scene of this blazing mountain and the sound of a voice with no form, Moses says, did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of fire that you heard in the that's grace and mercy of God. Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? That's God's faithful commitment to his people. See, a holy fear of the Lord actually draws us near to the Lord in love. And without first understanding his awesome and fearsome power of a holy God, we can never begin to fully understand the great love that he has towards us. Our scripture reading read by Pastor George this morning in Psalm 145, verse 18 to 20 says, The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked will destroy him. He's near to those who call on him. He fulfills desires of those who fear him, and he preserves all who love him. But even this great love is but a foreshadow. The perfect fulfillment of God's love is found in Christ on the cross, where God the Father demonstrated his love by crushing his beloved Son on our behalf. Romans 5, 79 says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, or perhaps a good person who would dare to die. 
But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. No one is too far from his reach. You may be thinking right now that I've done the unthinkable. I've done the unimaginable. Pastor brother, I understand what you're saying, but you don't understand my story. I'm not worthy of God's love. But you're right. But what you should do is rejoice in the fact that no one is. And it's not about your goodness, but it's. An illustration of this is found in the two thieves on the cross. They were both crucified with Jesus. One on his left, one on his right. One on his left, one on his right. They both mocked Jesus. He said, save yourself if you really are the promised Messiah. But as darkness and the reality of death closed in, the second thief had a change of heart. He turned to the first thief and he said, don't you fear God since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him and said, I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Today. Jesus holds out that same offer to you today. For those who are not yet believers, you are the thief on the cross. The question is, which thief are you? Will you mock the Savior? Or will you trust the Savior today? Will you fear him or will you fear man? Choose to trust him today. When you come face to face with who face to face with who God is and what he's done for us, we'll bring you to this kind of biblical fear. God's love is sacrificial and unconditional. And the Shema was like a wedding vow to Israel. They said, I do, and then they turned and committed spiritual adultery. But God in Christ has made an indestructible battle for those who turn from sin and put their trust in Jesus. The one who died and rose from the dead on the third day, he defeated sin and conquered death. And he says, come and receive God's love. So my Christian brothers and sisters, are you weak from falling into sin? Do you have a lack of assurance as a result? Are you clinging to the promise that nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? For us, the fear of the Lord means reverence, submission that leads to obedience. In other words, worship. Think of Romans 12, verse 1 and 2, where Paul, in the first 12 chapter, highlights God's mercy and his love. And then he says, therefore, or in light of God's mercies, offer your bodies as living sacrifices holy and pleasing. This is your true act of worship. So what is love? God is love. How could God command them to love him? Based on his covenant. Based on his character. And looking forward to Christ's sacrifice. And now as believers, our obedience that's ours is only a result of the Spirit's work that's within us. And as we walk in the Spirit and yield to the Spirit, we produce the fruit of the Spirit. 
It's not a product of our own strength or our own willpower. Again, you can see this pattern. It all starts and it ends with God. He's the initiator, the author and finisher of our faith, the covenant-keeping God, and he deserves all of the glory. He's also the one true God, the exclusive God. See that in verse 4, where he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This means the Lord is totally unique in that sense. He's establishing with Israel that he alone is God. See, the focus had to be on God's oneness. Why? Because Israel just came back from a culture in Egypt that worshiped all kinds of false gods and goddesses. And now they were getting ready to head into a land surrounded by all kinds of false gods and goddesses. So in that way, the worship of the only true God, the one God, made the most sense because it was just unique to these people. And this is exactly what they needed to be firm in their hearts and as a witness to the nations. And in no way does this contradict the idea of training, just to be clear. So just a word about that. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the God-man himself, quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 3, without any contradiction of his views. So if the Lord is one, you see that in the text, how are we to understand the truth? Though the word Trinity is not found in the Bible, the concept is all throughout the scriptures. The only one true God who eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are each referred to as God with attributes that only God has. For example, in John 1, 1, Jesus was in the beginning with God. And in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word is God. Colossians 1, 16 and 17, all creation was made through Jesus. Matthew 28, 19 and 20, we refer to as a great commission. The Holy Spirit is listed with the Father and with the Son as the name that believers are to be baptized into. And Peter refers to the Holy Spirit as God in Acts chapter 5, verse 3 and 5. So the Father is not the Son or the Holy Spirit. The Son is not the Father or the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not the Father or the Son. It's a great mystery. In one sense, it should be, because God is beyond us. Yet the Bible affirms this truth. There is a beauty and a love that is found in the truth. What is it to have doctrine that doesn't lead to worship? Again, what is it to have doctrine that does not lead us into worship? The triune God of the Bible is the definition, is the example, and is the source of love. Within the Trinity, there's an outpouring of love and communication and oneness because God is in a relationship community of love. Jesus spoke about this relationship. He says, the Father, the Father, he loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. John chapter 3, verse 35. He says, I do all, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. What was God doing before the foundation of the world, before creation? Jesus in his high priestly prayer in John 17, verse 4 and 5 says, I glorified you on earth, speaking to the Father, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Verse 24, he goes on to say, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, 
to see my glory that you may have, that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. God of the Bible is eternally relational. The falsely some religions, they teach that God made people in order to cure his loneliness. It's not true. The Bible fact is that God within the Trinity was never without love and community. Rather, he is in, he's a relational God who welcomes us into that relationship with him. And that's something to tremble at, to tremble at that mystery and that love from your God. We miss out if we see the Trinity as a doctrine just to debate. God wants us to know him and to tremble in his loving, joyful, humble, relational ways. By the Spirit, through the Son, and to the Father. So to rightly understand the relation between fear, love, and obedience, you gotta know his word and tremble, or his character and tremble as the covenant keeping, one true God, and lastly, we're to do this in light of examining the heart. So how do we develop a heart that trembles? Verse 6 says, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Best way to get the word into your heart is to meditate on the word of your mind. This was an expectation of God's people. They were responsible to meditate on these commandments and to keep them in their hearts. This type of meditation is not uh, emptying of your mind, but to remember, to recall, to ponder over what God has said. In many respects, meditation was the means to really hear. From ears to mind to heart to hands to aim to put into practice. How can a young man keep his way pure? Psalm 119. By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Psalm 119, 9-11. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do all according to what is written. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Joshua 1 8. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. Psalm 1, verse 1 3. So good. God says, blessed is the man. His or her way shall be prosperous. The type of prosperous that is uh, as pleasing to God. This is the way to have a pure heart by meditating on the word of God. Cultivate a heart that trembles. You have to ask the question, what do you meditate on daily? You meditate on God's word? What are you recalling from scriptures throughout the day? See, these things were vital going into the promised land. God knew and he knows that the comfort and daily routines of life have a way of dulling our memories. This is not just for the Israelites, but this temptation is common to man. Think about it. 
you've all come out of a year plus of being socially distant, not gathering as a church. And during this time, we had seasons of prayer. I remember we was on conference calls every day, like three or four months. We became experts in technology. You see, preaching and teaching through WhatsApp and Zoom and virtual conferences. Sure, there was a way, this was a way for us to kind of relieve the anxiety that we have under the unknown. But we also long for our time together. We missed it. But the question now is how are you adjusting to things now that you're becoming normal? So here in our text, Moses has a potential situation. The Israelites were transitioning from the wilderness to the promised land. We knew from the previous generation. They needed to have a fear of God instilled in them so that their hearts would not want Verse 6, he says, In these words I command you today shall be known. Transitions have a way of offering new opportunities, opportunities for change and growth, or opportunities for rebellion, division, forgetting that God is God. My heart is that this would not be our testimony. Because as a church family, we have transition as well. We're meeting in person now in a new facility, new area for evangelism, new members, PSA team, and panel discussions, and deaconess nominations, new series, new preachers, all of these things. The question I have is how is your heart in relation to God's providence? How's your heart as things begin to normalize? You examine your heart through the lens of the fear of the Lord. You see all throughout scripture that the heart speaks out of the overflow of the heart. The heart plans, the heart desires, the heart thinks, the heart acts, the heart worships. The Lord is after our heart. This is why he says again in verse 6, through Moses, these words that I command to you today shall be this is the reality. We are who we are in our hearts. We can deceive ourselves. We can even deceive others. But you know who we cannot deceive? We cannot deceive God. Because he really knows our hearts. Worship is what we were made for. But because of the fall, idol worship is what we've done. The questions you want to ask yourself is, do I worship control and pleasure? Is wealth or fame an idol? How are you in those relationships with folks and thinking in those things? Do I want something that God wants for me, but I want it so much that I go after it in an ungodly way? It can be happiness, it can be health, it can be family, it can be friends. Am I controlled by my expectations? Controlled by them in such a way that if they are not met, I become ungodly with word, deed, or attitude. I have expectations placed on a spouse, children, an employer, employee, and you're slave to what a diet or exercise may promise. These are all issues of the heart that can develop into idols. So the remedy for false worship and idols for Israel and for us is true worship. See, that's the ultimate goal of fear and love, that our hearts will tremble in true worship of God. 
the type of trembling that takes your breath away and leaves you speechless. Like this past spring, I had the pleasure of marrying the Johnsons and the Robinsons. It was so cool. I loved it. I loved that opportunity. And we praise God for that, right? One of my favorite parts, for real, for real, is when uh, the bride came out. They were beautiful. And right before their entrance, I said, please rise for the bride. And immediately I looked over the room, just in case I needed to catch her. <laughs> because I remember seeing my love. And in that moment, I had this kind of overwhelming feeling of weakness, trembling, fear. I can't believe she's mine. I can't believe she's mine. Sadly, over time, we become so familiar that fear and love that we felt has a tendency to ebb and flow. But be reminded always of your wedding vows and your wedding day. Be reminded of the scriptures, specifically the husbands, love your wives, wives respect your husbands. And in that sacrificial love, and in that honor, and in that respect, is a picture of the fear and love dynamic between Christ and the church. That's what Moses is saying to his people before crossing the river Jordan, what God and Christ is saying to us. Feel the word and trembling, and his character and trembling, to cultivate a heart culture. And it's the gospel that Christ died and rose from the dead in our place and for our sins that makes the difference between being afraid of God and fearing God. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you for your word. God, you have spoken. Let the church say amen. God, you've seen Lord, when you speak, it's not just a matter of feeling, but it's a matter of obeying. Trusting you. Who that is love. God, throughout these coming months, would you teach us the fear of you? You teach us that there is joy in that, God. We be transformed and changed as a people who fear you in such a way that you're glorified. Oh God, we ask that you would do that. Now, for those who do not know you, Lord, that they would understand this left side of the spectrum that we should tremble with terror, knowing that one day, Lord, the same God we curse and we live any kind of way is the same God we have to face. We thank you for Jesus who came to save sinners. So for those that don't know you, Lord, we pray that you have done a work in their heart, that they would turn from sin and trust in the risen Christ. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.